Hey you, this is Radio Taiwan International. I'm your host for the day, Sharon Lin, and you're listening to Last Debatable. How do we learn about dark historical events, for example, like the Holocaust? How do we handle historical trauma? Since they're so dark and horrific, can we just not learn about them and skip them completely? Spoiler alert, nope, that's a bad idea. Many harmful sentiments are unfortunately still among us in our current society, and it's very important that we keep on learning, especially in nuanced ways. I sat down with Sophie Don, Associate Director of Philadelphia Holocaust Remembrance Foundation, to talk more about Holocaust education. Let's jump right in. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Sharon. Hello, thank you for sparing time here with us. So Sophie Don is currently the Associate Director at the Philadelphia Holocaust Remembrance Foundation in Philadelphia in the United States. So today, of course, we're going to talk about the Holocaust and especially Holocaust education. So Sophie, um, could you briefly tell us what does your organization do and specifically what do you do in your organization? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really excited to be talking about this topic, but also to be talking with you. It is my honor. So I am the Associate Director of Philadelphia Holocaust Remembrance Foundation. Um, our foundation maintains, operates, and does all programming for the first Holocaust public Holocaust monument in the country, um, in the U.S. So that means we're doing all of the physical maintenance for the plaza. Um, it's on a major thoroughfare in downtown Philadelphia. It's right near City Hall. So we're dealing with, you know, trash just from, you know, litter. We're dealing with vandalism, um, which, you know, sometimes happens out of, you know, it's more in an anti-Semitic context. Sometimes it's just like kids who are graffitiing. And then we do all the programming and all of the fundraising um, and then a lot of educational programs, both virtually and in person um, at the plaza. For those who know little of the Holocaust, how would you give an introduction of this very important historic event? Sure. Um, well, I mean, the it's going to sound very kind of textbook um but you know the textbook very very short description is um yeah that it was the holocaust was that the holocaust was the systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million european jews by the nazi regime and its allies and collaborators and we and the u.s holocaust memorial museum and all of our peer organizations do define the holocaust as being 1933 to 1945 um i think there's a common misconception that the Holocaust took place during World War II, so 1939 to 1945. Yeah, and we really need to think of it as starting when Hitler came to power, because that's when we start seeing the anti-Semitic and racist propaganda. That's when we start seeing legislation um, passed. Uh, and so many of the the major events that were exclusionary and um, violent and, you know, all of the pieces that led up to the final solution, um, you know, took place before 1939. Yeah, I, I really like the point you, you brought up. Um, you said that it, it's going to sound very similar to what people would learn generally from a, from textbooks. But I think it's a great start because, for example, thinking about students in Taiwan, what how we learn about the Holocaust, of course, from school and usually from textbooks and usually a page or even less than that. So I think younger students, especially, yeah, we're going to talk more about this later on. I'm really th looking forward to it, is how to balance, you know, giving enough and important information, but also balancing, you know, how, like, what's target age group of your audience and of students. And how would you 
describe, you know, why is it important to learn about a Holocaust? I think it's it's important generally, but even more so now. Um, we're at a really a really interesting and really pivotal point where, um, yeah, the number of survivors that remember what happened are decreasing. I mean, we there are almost you know none yeah. left. Um, there. Yeah, the elderly grandmas, yeah, grandpas. Yeah, and, and there there are still individuals who were children um, in the Holocaust, or they were born, um, you know, just just after. Um, but the folks who who were in the camps as teenagers, um, you know, they are they're now in their nineties. So we're at a really interesting point right now, um, where you know the the Holocaust survivor community who had been kind of the you know they've been the, the leaders of Holocaust education and remembrance, they aren't able to do that anymore. And um, their children, who yeah, we call second generation, and then we call my generation third generation, the torch is kind of being passed generation to generation. It's important to learn about because, uh, yeah, even though we're 70 years removed, we're more than 70 years removed from the tragedies of the Holocaust, the general public... Um, and I'll say in the U.S., because I'm not sure of elsewhere in the world, um, but in the U.S., the kind of data that we're looking at, um, there are so many people that don't know this history. Um, and that's evident both in you know, the, the kind of data that we see from surveys that, that different organizations collect about you know, just baseline foundational knowledge um, about the history, but then also the rapid rise in anti-Semitic and bigoted activity. Um, it's not a rise in anti-Semitism that's been around, but the kind of activity and the emboldened, the emboldened actions of those that, that hold these kinds of beliefs has been skyrocketing um, over the past seven years or so. Mm, I see. Yeah, and I, I'd love to talk to you more about the context of the U.S. There is a very big Jewish community in the U.S. And so there is a large population in the U.S., but it's still a little bit less than 2.5% of the U.S. population. So it's still a really small percentage. Um, and I think what's interesting about the Jewish population is that that doesn't mean that everybody is observant. Um, that doesn't mean that there are folks who feel, you know, religiously Jewish. Many of them are, but there's also this very, very strong cultural co connection. Um, so like, for me, for example, and I had a bat mitzvah, so I went through the tradition of, you know, I went to Hebrew school um, growing up. Um, I read from the Torah when I was 13 and had this kind of coming of age ceremony. Yeah, I'm very connected to to my Judaism, but I'm not religious. Um, my family's not religious. We do some of the big holidays, but we're very culturally connected to our Judaism. I also know that your family is Jewish, and I would love to know more a little bit about your family history, how your um, grandparents, they made their way to the U.S., and how you ended up in Philadelphia. Sure. So for my family, um, my and my mother's parents, who were also Jewish, they had been in the U.S. for a while. Um, the, the folks who came to the U.S. Um, came from Russia and Ukraine way back, you know, like early 1900s. But my father's parents, my paternal grandparents, they're both survivors. So my grandmother, which I call her Bubby, uh, which is the Yiddish word for, for grandmother, she was from Klachanov, Czechoslovakia. 
um, in the Carpathian Mountains, born in 1929. And she didn't really know what was happening with the Nazis and, and the regime until 1939, when she started to see big changes coming to her school. But she was in a really, really tiny town, so it took a long time for it to, to get there. You know, she remembers having to wear a yellow star that happened to signify, you know, who is Jewish. They wear the yellow star on their clothing. And in 1944, she and her family were deported um, around. A lot of the deportations started around Passover and very, very important holiday. And they were deported to a ghetto first um, in the nearby large city of Munkach which was not that large of a city. And they were in a ghetto that was, you know, their whole family in an, you know, eight feet by eight feet space with one meal a day. And then they were deported to Auschwitz. She and one of her sisters remained together throughout the entirety of the Holocaust. They were together through Auschwitz, through Stutthof camp. They were ultimately liberated by the British in May of 1945 when they were on a uh, death march from the camp of Proust. Uh, and then my grandfather was, he was from Poland. He was the only survivor of his family. My bubby survived with two of her siblings, but my, my grandfather was one of seven, was the only survivor. And as far as he knew, he was the only survivor of his town. And so in 1941, he was taken to a ghetto, was then thrown in jail for stealing food. And it was from jail that he ended up being taken to Auschwitz, and then was moved to Buchenwald camp, um, and then another camp um, called Ordov. And ultimately, he ended up in Theresienstadt um, and was liberated by the Russians in 1945. But both he and my grandmother, you know, they were both teenagers when they were liberated, and they ended up in a, what they called displaced persons camps, um, which was kind of the, we're not sure what to do with you, but, you know, you can't go home. You might not have a home. So they met in a displaced persons camp, and and the way that my grandmother talks about their meeting is just so sweet. And so like, even after they've gone through this absolute tragedy and like, I, I cannot even, but they met, they met and they fell in love. And, and my, my grandfather wanted to go to Israel, but which had just become the state of Israel. Um, and my grandmother wanted to go to Philadelphia where she had um, one brother and an aunt who had made it here. And she was like, if you want to marry me, you're coming to Philadelphia. And so they came to Philly and um, they were in the Northeast, which was where there was a really, really big survivor population. My grandfather opened a bakery and they built this beautiful life. Yeah. And Bubby's 94 and I see her every week and she's great. Oh, that's wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your story. So it you, uh, you remember very vividly as a kid learning these stories firsthand from your grandparents. Oh, yes. Uh, I, my, my bubby would talk. She would talk about lots of things from her, I mean, both from the tiny, tiny village that she grew up in. And she would share stories kind of intermittently about her time in the camps or being deported. Um, my grandfather, he died before I was born, um, but he wrote a book about his life. And so that's my, that's kind of been my connection um, to, to his story. And then hearing about it from, you know, my father and my aunt, you know, just from what they've gained from their parents. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think, wow, again, I, I could not describe, you know, having, just having to go through it. Also, it's just a very beautiful thing that, you know, two people who have been through so much trauma 
but also found hope and found love and build a home, like physically uh, speaking, also metaphorically speaking. And that they had so much positivity. Like my, my grandmother is one of the most hopeful and positive people. I've written so many essays about her, like growing up as her being my hero. Mm. And yeah, I'm like, and she is my hero and I love her so much. I think the, the idea that somebody can go through something as, as incredible um, as the Holocaust and to come out and have any hope is just astounding. And I think it's something that can hopefully put a lot into, like, it helps me put anything into perspective. Mm. When you were at school, what was your observation of how the Holocaust was taught in the U.S. in school? And I know it differs a lot in the U.S. from one state to another. And even and even like school to school. So it's a real, it's a super interesting question. Um, and it's something that now in this role, because we're working with so many schools and we're working with teachers from all over the country. So it's been really interesting to see how, how do different teachers and then how do different schools and different states approach the Holocaust education. So in many states, there are, there are mandates to teach it. So in that case, yeah, there is curriculum that is, that's included, that's you know, it might be reading Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry or reading, um, you know, Ellie Wiesel's Night or, you know, a number of a couple other books that are very kind of go to memoirs or um, historical fiction. Like Number of the Stars is not a true story, um, but it's a really good intro for students to be learning about the history. So in the states where it's mandated, they have to teach it. In Pennsylvania, where we are, the it's not a mandate but it is a strongly suggested so that kind of gives us an interesting opportunity because at least in pennsylvania i mean there are schools that don't really cover it but what they can do is they can kind of bake in some of their reading into you know the english language arts curriculum or into um the arts curriculum or into um their social studies so it's in a way, it gives it a little bit more of an opening where you can add in more if you have the time and space. But the negative side of it is that because it's not a full mandate, there are also places where it's just really not being taught or it's not being taught very well. So what we try to do is we're creating a lot of lesson plans that have more of an intersectional approach. So things that you know, we're able to bring in, if it's in the arts, if it's an art teacher that wants to be teaching, we're going to talk about degenerate art and the kind of art um, and and propaganda that was used by the Nazis. And then what is the art that the Nazis determined to be degenerate, um, which was essentially anything that was against, you know, their ideology uh, or by anybody who, you know, was, was not German enough. So, there are ways where we try to bring that in. We also have a lesson plan that's about propaganda, and we talk a lot about Jim Crow era anti-Black propaganda. We also talk about um, World War II um, anti-Japanese propaganda, and we put that in conversation with the Nazis, yeah, anti-Semitic propaganda. So it's one way that we're trying to navigate the the differences across states and in, and across subject matters to really get in to classrooms and to try and make it as easy as possible to pull in, you know, educational resources. And you said something earlier that was that was interesting about kind of at what age do you start to talk about this? And, you know, for for me and as as you mentioned, 
and I grew up with all of this, like as a Jewish kid and as a Jewish kid who's the grandchild of survivors. This has just been in my family dialogue forever. Yeah, but for other kids, yeah, picture probably would be very different. Yes. Yeah. So it's about how do we reach the the kids who don't have this in their background? And how do we reach kids now that, yeah, when I was in school, survivors would come and speak. And now they're not able to do that anymore. There's a couple survivors in Philadelphia that are able to do that. Um, but between the pandemic and them aging, um, it's it's hard to do. So how have we been pivoting either because of the pandemic or I, I was recalling um, I majored in English for my bachelor's. So this is something that that's a very important event that I have to know more about. And I've been reading, I would say more, I would say more than the average, say, university student in, in Taiwan. But it was when I was in D.C., this was during my grad school years that I went to um, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. It, it really, yeah, listeners, I highly recommend if you ever find yourself in D.C., please go check check out the museum. I still remember how, I don't I don't even know how to describe. It's a mixture of, of, of shocking and also sadness, but also you knew that this was something that really, really happened in the past, but also it's, you know, seeing the shoes and, you know, all the photographs. I think it's something that you're, you, you were talking about, you know, having survivors coming to school, talking to kids who probably are, you know, less familiar with the Holocaust. It really speaks volume and it's a very important process. How could you tell the story to, especially to younger kids that know very little and how would you make that first step? That's a great question. Well, we so we typically stay in the kind of middle school and up range. Okay, so uh, what's the age um, range? Ten or so, and and it's and that's at a, a gray area. There are resources for younger younger kids. And what's hard is how do you how do you introduce this kind of history without it being traumatized? Yes. Yeah. And the concepts are really hard to understand. I mean, to you're not going to talk about propaganda in depth with, you know, a sixth grader. That's it's just going to yeah. be really hard to do. They probably don't even know how to pronounce that word. It's just yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. how how do we even start? And that's something yeah. that I've always loved to talk about. You know, educators about this. Yeah, yeah. And what we what we try to do, and we as a foundation try to do, is and yes. we're we're a two person operation. Um, it's myself and the executive director. We're a very small shop. So what we do is, even though we do have our own lesson plans that we have developed, we utilize a lot of our peer organizations' resources. So places like the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which is such an incredible museum and incredible resource, and I highly recommend, you know, if any listeners are interested in learning more, they go to their website, and there's so yes. there. They have videos. They have timelines they have I and mean, they just have everything they're incredible so we will often utilize their resources and they and the usc shoah foundation which is kind of the the other very very large very very incredible resource and archive these two organizations have a lot that a lot of resources that span a lot of age groups and usc shoah has a couple of really good videos that we have used in teacher trainings or um, or with younger students that is more of a way of introducing the idea of empathy, but in easier terms. <laughs> so talking yeah. about... Like, Friendlier. Yeah, I mean, like 
like one in particular, it tells the story of a survivor is telling the story. So it's using testimony, which is always what we want to do whenever possible is we want to be using that first person experience. A survivor who's telling the story of him being a young man and he's using the kind of the through line of his dog and that his dog wasn't able to come into the ghetto with them, but she kept on trying to get there. And it's this idea of the connection and the loves that they like that her love overcame the fences of the Nazis. So it's these it's taking these little ideas like of love can conquer you know, so much or yeah, giving hope, giving hope. Yeah, it, it takes more of a more of a positive thematic way of bringing bringing kids into learning about the story. So thinking about resilience, thinking about, you know, why why should we dislike people that are different than us? We shouldn't dislike people who are different than us. that is a great question. Yeah. It's a rhetorical question. Yeah, that yeah. is a great question. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. more bringing as, them in with that. Yeah, and I still remember when I was in, in the museum in, in D.C., so you would get a passport mm-hmm. uh, with a story of a survivor. And I got a young, young lady. It's just every room along the way. So they would instruct you to turn the page if I remembered it correctly. And my the, the person I got was got a happy ending. She she made it out alive. She escaped from the train ride. And then she later on become a doctor because she wants to, you know, save life and create, you know, just hope. And so I think thinking about what you mentioned, your first person, and also um, it's very important that to kind of find ways to bring survivor story into the world of, of students, of children. And I think it's very important. I'm a member of another organization. I'm on the board of 3G Philly. So it's a it's a group of third generation survivors that's dedicated to education around the Holocaust. And one of the major things that we attempt to do is train grandchildren of survivors how to tell their grandparents' story. Because as as we are losing survivors, making sure that, you know, hopefully we have recordings of our grandparents' stories or we have books of our grandparents' story. But as we, you know, like as they are unable to go into schools, we can start trying to fill that void. Um, so we can go into schools and we can we can speak kind of for them um, and try and tell their stories. So it's not first person, totally, but it is a it's an attempt to try and keep the story um, in a out of not necessarily coming from a textbook, but coming from a person and keeping that personal personal perspectives, the family, family perspective. Yeah, that's amazing. Cause, and I'm really curious to know more about like what educational programs and resources say your organization offers or and also from what you shared with us, it's would you say your organization is also like a liaison for many other organizations in the U.S. for Holocaust education? That's, that's a cool way to put it. I think we in Philadelphia I think we do a good job of connecting teachers with resources, whether they're from us or from peer organizations. And there are so many great organizations that are doing commemorative and remembrance and educational work around the Holocaust. We don't want we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, you know, we don't want to be writing a lesson plan that somebody else has already done beautifully. Um, you know, we would rather use what they have and give appropriate credit, of course. So we work very closely with the school district of Philadelphia, just the largest public school district in the state. By working with the teachers there, we can bring in so many different kinds of resources. 
Stay tuned for part two of her interview coming out next Wednesday. I'll see you then.